All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan. Welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm here today with Joel Block. Joel's a futurist, longtime venture capitalist, and hedge fund manager, which basically is gobbledygook for professional investor, who lives in a Shark Tank-like on TV. Initially an expert blackjack player, counting cards and beating casinos in Las Vegas, Joel later built and sold his publishing company to a Fortune 500 company. Joel, welcome to the show. Lisa, thanks for having me. How are you? Good. Good, thanks. Good. Now, I know that this is a manufacturing podcast and we're going to be getting there because there are all kinds of disruptive business trends going on in manufacturing. But before we get started, you know, you are a professional investor, which basically means that you look forward in time. So how do you decide exactly what to do when it comes to these trends that you're talking about? I'm sort of, you know, I started in the gambling business and I sort of am still in that business where I take risks for a living. I, I look at things, investors give me their capital. I'm not a broker. I mean, investors literally give me their money and then we go buy things together and then we share the profits. And that's that's how Wall Street works. That's how my business works. And that's, uh, I've been in that business for uh, 30 years. I've uh, bought and sold companies. I built and sold my own company uh, from scratch to a, a big company. And and so, you know, I mean, I've done what a lot of other companies or entrepreneurial type people have tried to do. And so I look at companies from a lot of different perspectives. And I think about the impact of uh, different kinds of things that are happening in the world on different kinds of companies. And, and then I think about who's going to win, who's going to lose. And, and that's sort of how I do it. But so one of the things that we'll talk about, I hope, is disruptive business trends, because these are things that could knock you out of your lane or cause you some problems. And so I always like to think about that. And, and then I like to think about, you know, what could go right, what could go wrong and, you know, what the impact of different kinds of external and internal things are. And uh, there's a lot here, you know, we'll unpack a lot of stuff is what I'm kind of trying to tell you. So how did you get started in all this? What was your journey as far as where you started and how you ended up here? I learned how to play blackjack as, as a young guy. I was 20, 20, 21 years old. I was in casinos. I was playing. And actually, I knew I, I, was an, I was a really, really good player. I was really good at it. But I also knew if I kept playing, I wouldn't have gone to college. And, and it would have been bad for me in the long run. So I ended up getting a, an accounting degree and became a CPA, worked at Pricewaterhouse. But, you know, I, I was a little rebellious. I really wasn't a great accountant. In fact, if I didn't quit, I'd been fired for sure. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just, but, but what made me not be a good accountant is what made me great in business is that I asked a lot of questions. I always wondered things and they didn't want me to wonder things. They just wanted me to just be a good soldier and do the work. And I, I wasn't a good soldier, but I was a great general. And for them, uh, that wasn't what they needed from me. So, you know, I, I get that. And, and it wasn't the right environment. But I went off and started a real estate syndication company. I learned how to raise capital. I learned how uh, all this stuff works. And then started a venture capital transaction, which I built and sold. And, and I've just stayed in that business ever since. I love doing deals and buying and selling things. And, and now I spend a lot of time 
really, uh, you know, helping executives of different kinds of companies to see the world in, in maybe a different way, because I bring a different perspective to them. And I help them to learn from all the things that I've learned. You know, you go inside of a thousand companies in your career, buying, selling, looking at their books and records and being involved with those companies, and you learn a few things. And so uh, I've, I've been around the block and, and I, I share a lot of intel with, with my clients and with, with companies that we work with. And I know that a lot of the discussions that you get into have to do with private equity. So what exactly does that mean? And why are you having these kinds of conversations with manufacturers recently? Well, this, this is a really relevant question that you ask because a lot of people, uh, a lot of smaller companies are being approached by private equity firms to buy them. This is a very, very robust time for sales transactions. People, I recently was talking to a guy, he called me and said, look, I'm not really ready to sell my company yet, but I'm starting to get some calls. What do you think? I said, well, the iron is pretty hot. Companies are paying a lot for companies. So, you know, these private equity outfits are paying a lot. And if you're thinking about selling, you may not be perfectly ready, but the time might be just right. Companies are paying a lot because there's a lot of money on the sidelines. Private equity companies only make money when they deploy their capital and buy assets and then put those assets to work. I mean, that's the only way they make any money. So if they've got a big pool of capital in a, in a bank, that's not making them any money and they got to put it to work. And that's part of the reason why they're so aggressively looking for companies to buy. Now, that presupposes that everybody kind of understands what private equity is, and, and maybe they don't. I could just give you know a minute on this. Yeah, please you know, do, because I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really complicated uh, business. I've spent my whole life in it. It's a kind of a secret business that most people don't really understand. But here's kind of how this works, is that you have uh, equity is, is ownership, like when you have your house. So you have a mortgage, which is the bank that's borrowing, that's debt. And then there's equity, which is the part that you own. So we're not talking about the debt part. We're talking about the equity part, just the part that you own. And so equity comes in really two main forms. Uh, there could be public equity, which is the stock market where people put their, uh, their savings or they put their retirement or their pension fund goes into equities. They're called equities. Securities are called equities. And you know that's where you're buying the equity of a company. And that's public equity because it's been processed through the government regulatory system and so forth. But there's a whole other category called private equity, which is any business that's funded privately. Now that could be a small business where a family puts the money in to run their little company. It could be a large business that just is owned privately by uh, families or people, but it's not, uh, it's, it's not public. So there could be many owners. So a private equity firm is a firm that specializes in taking in capital from typically other firms, other funds, and they aggregate all this capital together and they go and they look to buy things, you know, and they tend to have something in common, whatever it is they buy, they'll have a strategy. Like for example, maybe they want to put together, uh, you know, a, a network of manufacturing companies in a certain category. We want to buy and put together roofing companies. We want to buy and put together manufacturing companies. We want to buy and put together mobile home parks. I mean, so there's different ways that you can group assets. And, and so these companies are out looking. Venture capital, which is really finance of innovative or early stage companies. That's another example. Hedge funds, uh, which are well, well known, not, but not well understood, is another kind of type of private equity. So there's lots of different kinds. Most of the kinds that affect manufacturing are these firms that are looking to buy companies and they're building 
portfolios of what are called portfolio companies. So they're trying to get 10 different companies and the companies kind of have some synergy where they work together and kind of help each other. And so they're, they're not financial buyers, which are only looking for returns. They're called strategic buyers because they're trying to build synergies among their assets. And that's, that's really who's making the phone calls. And what the good news is that they're not terribly price sensitive because they're more concerned about the value of their portfolio and your ability to contribute to their portfolio. So it's not about how great you are. It's about how great of a fit you are into their portfolio. So it sounds like it's not, when I think venture capital and I think of these, I think of days of old where these companies were coming in and buying companies to basically tear them apart and sell them in pieces. But it sounds like what you're saying is they're looking to actually build something where a group of companies is going to make money. So instead of tearing things apart, they're actually building things together. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, these things are not, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, you know, some, some companies buy and tear things down. Some companies buy and aggregate assets. Some, so there's all different strategies that these different companies will do, but what probably affects the manufacturing uh, industry more right now are probably the ones where the people are aggregating, strategically aggregating assets for the purpose of building a portfolio. Now, that's not to say that somebody wouldn't buy a company and then have a garage sale, you know, because there might be great real estate. They may have some other idea for what the business could be. So they may buy, there's a, I'm familiar with saying right in my own neighborhood where uh, there was a great restaurant, a fantastic restaurant, but they came and probably paid 50 times more than the restaurant was worth because they wanted the real estate so they could build a a large scale apartment shopping center. Mm. So it's not out of the question that that doesn't exist. It does. But most of what's happening in manufacturing right now are probably these strategic buys for the purpose of uh, building uh, portfolios. And what do you see are some of the other big trends that are on the horizon for manufacturers? The fact that private equity is calling is, is it's sort of a trend. I mean, it's not a disruptive trend, but it's sort of happening. But there are some other things that are really big and really important. To me, probably the most significant one, the, the thing that manufacturing companies could do immediately that would most impact their pricing, it would most impact their uh, bottom line in, in a positive way is to get off of the transactional treadmill, you know, where, where you sell something and the next day you got to sell something else. The next day you have to sell something else and move toward more of a subscription or a recurring revenue model. This is, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, this doesn't really apply to us. That's kind of more of a technology thing. But Wall Street and the private equity companies love these kinds of revenue numbers. They love recurring revenue because it's dependable. So in manufacturing, what does that mean? That could be an auto ship where every month somebody signs up for an automatic shipment and you give them some kind of a reason why they would do that. You know, maybe they get priority shipping, priority uh, inventory. Maybe they get a little price discount for being automatic. Uh, you could have a, a whole service department where your, your service department is based on the, we're going to send somebody out Uh, whenever you need them. And so we have a service contract. Service contracts are recurring revenue. So there are different ways that uh, manufacturing firms can install uh, recurring revenue programs into their model, but it's very important because recurring revenue is a higher quality revenue than transactional revenue. And so it's different. The real real difference here, the trend is 
that this is not about all dollars being the same color green because they're not. Recurring revenue dollars are worth more. And, and that's just uh, an important distinction that uh, I, I hope your listeners can understand because if they move in the direction of starting to create higher quality revenue, then, uh, then they, they move in the direction of making their company more valuable, uh, whether it's to uh, an acquirer or if it's just for the current ownership and management to just have more money come to the bottom line, is that those are better dollars. Well, and it just seems that this is a different way of thinking when it comes to manufacturing. And when the, with the last two years now with the COVID and everything else that's been going on, of really looking at every aspect of your business differently, and certainly that recurring revenue, some kind of auto ship can be a game changer for some of the people that are listening today. It's, it's, a, it's a real game changer. And, you know, the first really big company that did this uh, was Microsoft. You know, Microsoft was always in the software sales business, but they're not in the software sales business anymore. Now they're in the software rental business. And, you know, basically you don't buy office anymore. Now you rent it on a yearly basis, Office 365, their new program. And it took a long time for it to catch on. But once it finally caught on, they were rewarded with not only enormously more revenue, enormously more net profit but enormously more market cap. In other words, the price of their stock went enormously higher. So part of it was related to more revenue that, that just came to the bottom line. And part of it was that Wall Street rewarded them with a higher number. And all those things together, you know, and you look at the stock graph and it's like, a, it's amazing. So these are, these are concerns that are easy for companies to address. I mean, maybe I wouldn't say easy, but this isn't uh, the most complicated thing in the world. You know, if, if people sit in a boardroom and they start thinking, how can we create some recurrence? How can we create some repetitiveness so that our salespeople don't have to be knocking on doors all the time? That's the beginning of a solution. Well, and it also ties those customers to you. It makes it a lot easier, a lot harder for them to leave you and go to a, co a competitor because they know that you're always there. Their products are expected. And that's, and that's why your company becomes more valuable is because you're not a transient kind of company where things are coming and going and maybe somebody buys, maybe they don't buy. When you start getting the kind of regularity, regularity is loyalty and loyalty is bankable. And when you've got that, then you're all of a sudden you're in the money. When I think about it from a convenience factor, because even with the Microsoft 365, which of course I went into that fighting, kicking, screaming. I wanted to buy that and pay one time for it. But then they just made it so darn attractive for you with the different things you could do on PowerPoint. And it just, it made sense to stay with that program. And it's the same thing. If you as a manufacturer can figure out how to make it more convenient for your customers, how to give them, like you said, either discounts or better service or priority shipping, or that they know that they are first in line when it comes to some of the shortages that we're doing because they're recurring customers versus you know some Joe off the street that's gonna be a one-shot deal. You're making, basically you're making an offer they can't refuse. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And if you look more carefully at Microsoft, think about this, because this is what used to happen. And maybe your experience is the same. So about every five years, I'd buy a new copy of Office, you know, about mm -hmm. every, let's say. So I go to Staples, uh, you know, the office supply store, and I pay about $200, $250. Of that, Microsoft probably got half. So they got about $100. And, and then I would take that disc for about five years. 
and I'd give copies of it to my kids, even though I wasn't supposed to. That's what we all did. You know, we all did the same thing. And, uh, and that's what happened. So about every five years, Microsoft got a hundred bucks out of it. So then they come out with this new idea and they say, look, you're going to get all our updates. You're going to get everything you have. You're going to have it all the time and you get the whole suite. There's no fooling around. You can have as many people, you know, all five year people in your family could be on the thing. And, and so what do they do now? So now Staples is out of the loop. You're not buying it from Staples. So they got hundred bucks direct. They get it every single year. So in 10 years under my old pattern, they would have probably got $200, but now under the new pattern, they get $1,000. So that's five times more. And then Wall Street gave them a two times bump on their multiple because I'm a more loyal customer now. I mean, now they've got predictable revenue. So 10 times uh, bump, I mean, and this is really the truth. If you look at the stock pricing, their uh, stock price is up almost 10 times from about 2014. If wow. you look at the numbers, they've gone up by 10 times and it's not inflation. It's, it's because Wall Street has rewarded them for a specific pattern of activity. And these patterns of activity, I work with manufacturing companies to help them do exactly the same thing. They really need to be doing some of this. So these are some, uh, this is a very disruptive trend. It's a very powerful trend. And there are strategies that companies need to employ to, to hook into these things and to take advantage of them. Well, and you also mentioned inflation. So, and that's something that's come up in a lot of conversations in the last several weeks, several months. How does inflationary market affect manufacturing specifically? Well, you know, what's obvious is that prices go higher. So, mm -hmm. so a couple of things happen. Number one, on the supply side, everything you have to buy goes higher. On the sell side, everything you sell has to go higher. So the, all, the whole ocean just lifted up a little bit. You know, all everything went up a little bit, uh, but there's really a lot more to it than that. If you borrow money, there's a very good chance that interest rates are going to be going higher uh, not long from now. I mean, the Fed is, is working on this right now. They haven't uh, exactly released it. By the time this episode comes out, we'll know more. But uh, the likelihood is that the Fed is going to be raising interest rates at least somewhat. So that means that if you carry inventory, your carrying costs are going to be going higher. That puts pressure on manufacturers, you know, for margin. So there's so that's that's a very problematic thing in the manufacturing sector. And manufacturers really need to plan for that. They need to be as lean as they can on inventory. But then they're conflicted because there's a supply chain problem. They want to have as much inventory as they can because, uh, you know, they otherwise they may not be able to get anymore. So there's a real conflict. And and these are things that companies have to kind of work through and think through. And that's, but that's the impact of inflation is inflation impacts us in lots of different ways. Uh, the other thing is that uh, consumers are really getting pinched. I mean, as prices start going higher, food, gas, travel, other kinds of things, uh, housing, as those numbers go higher for people, they have less discretionary income. So depending on the kind of product that you produce, whether you're uh, an end user product or whether you're something that goes into another product, it, you know, all the way down that chain, uh, there may be less dollars available. And so the economy starts to contract and get a little smaller because people don't have the money to keep going. So, you know, for many years, over the last 10 years, more and more air has been, been, been put into the balloon, the balloon being the economy, and the economy gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And now a little bit of air is going to start coming out of that balloon. It's not going to be like the recession during the COVID. That's, that's not it. It's not going to be the recession of 2008. But we can expect that the balloon's going to get a little smaller 
And that means that everybody's going to have to tighten their belt a little bit because things are going to change. And that's a, a bigger discussion than now, but certainly it's an important question that you bring up. And so what are you seeing as far as the things that manufacturers are doing well right now to prepare for the future and then some of the mistakes that you're seeing that they're making? COVID, you know, was, was kind of a mixed bag for people. For some people, uh, it just knocked them off their podium and they, they lost their balance and they haven't been able to reorganize themselves. For others, for very re- they really demonstrated great resilience and they really demonstrated the ability to think clearly that this market's not working anymore. And they looked at the landscape and they said, what other uh, landscapes can we uh, address? And they really found other places to start selling, just other ways that they needed to uh, put their products into the marketplace. And they started thinking, what are other problems that we could solve? And that's really uh, the question that you have. That's the fundamental question is what problem do we really solve? When you understand what problem you solve, well, who has this problem? And where are those people? And how do we find those people? And, you know, you can sort of start to spread your product across different environments by asking those kinds of questions. And as a professional investor, and and I I talk about being an advantage player because an advantage player is, uh, it's what Las Vegas calls experts in games of skill. And I was always an advantage player. It's it's both a skill set and it's an attitude. You know, so what does an advantage player do? An advantage player asks hard questions. They ask these very, very fundamental questions. To me, a hard question isn't like uh, advanced calculus. It's, it's, it's a simple question that's hard to answer. It's a basic question. Where are these customers and what problem do they have? And how much has COVID changed the nature of the problems that they have? And how can we address these problems and solve them? So when you start getting really into some fundamentals, and this is what some great companies have done, is they've really gone back to the basics, addressed some fundamental issues, and really thought carefully through a lot of these kinds of iterations. And that's, that's been successful for them. And it's really looking at business again, completely different and thinking about things that we have never thought of before. If you, I think the biggest mistake is thinking that business is the same and we're still manufacturing like it was like it's 1999 or even 2019, it's not the same. And just being willing to take a step back and look at every single aspect of your business differently than you had before by finding out what problem do we solve, who are the customers, and how can we have some kind of recurring revenue stream to move us forward into the future? A lot of systems, a lot of things that we take for granted in in our society really need to be revisited. And COVID, some of it was exposed by COVID. Some of it just we need to take a step back you know, take, for example, you know, the, the bail and the prison system. These are hundreds of years old, the way that it works. And we've been doing it the same way for hundreds of years. Maybe it's not a fair system anymore. Maybe it's not a good system anymore. I'm not saying good or bad, but I think we need to take a hard look at it. And people who understand these things really need to think through them. The way we educate children, I'm not an educator, but it's not very different from it was hundreds of years ago. They'd line kids up in, in, in lines and they put them in a schoolroom and they would teach them whatever. And, you know, children need different skills than they needed 50 or 100 or 200 years ago. I mean, we need children uh, that think differently, that are prepared for the modern world, not necessarily for a world that was industrial, but now a world that's digital. Probably the most significant thing that's on the horizon, and this, this is something I, I hope people will pay attention to, is that. Our financial and monetary system is ripe 
for a complete and total reorganization. And that reorganization is cryptocurrency. And because I, I strongly believe, I'm very bullish on this, that it's the future of money. Uh, I'm bullish on it from an investment perspective. A lot of people on Wall Street are very bullish about it. They're waiting for some guidance from the SEC and some of these other agencies to be able to release money into these uh, currencies. But the most important part about cryptocurrency, which most people are not really sensitive to, is the machinery that makes it run. Because the United States, there's no doubt in my mind that in, in 10 or 12 or 15 years from now, the United States is going to move to a digital currency. It's, it's almost 100% in, in my estimation, but it's not going to be Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is the cryptocurrency, but the machinery that makes it run, where we transfer money between each other, it's almost a certainty. And you know, if I told you that credit card companies, Wall Street banks, mortgage brokers are all going to be wiped out, everybody's getting wiped out, just like travel agents got wiped out in the, early, uh, in, the, in the late 90s when the internet came on the stage. So who do you think is buying all the machinery, investing all the money? It's the credit card companies, the Wall Street banks, and all these others that uh, they're putting a lot of energy into this. And uh, although the SEC has been asked for guidance, the chairman of the SEC is a former Goldman guy, and he's kind of dragging his feet. Now, why might he be dragging his feet? Well, maybe it's so he can give his friends on Wall Street a little bit of extra time to organize themselves because he's really concerned that they're going to be wiped out. And you know, we, we need regulation. This market really is desperate for some regulation. Um, but I, I bring this up and I spend some extra time on it because manufacturers, which are kind of considered uh, you know, less vogue or less fancy, let's say, than the technology company. But you know what? Manufacturers are on the leading edge of a lot of exciting things. And one of the things that they should think hard about is maybe they should think about accepting uh, cryptocurrency as compensation or payment because that puts them uh, you know, back in the forefront of some of the uh, uh, more modern approach. And it's just something for them to think about. Wow. Uh, and I'm sure cryptocurrency, that can be a whole nother podcast episode. Well, it could be, it could be a whole, it could be a whole podcast to itself. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Joel, as we're getting to the end of our time together, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you feel would be important for our audience members to know? You know, there, there's, there, well, there's a lot of things, but let me, let me, uh, let me make one last important suggestion. I spent most of my career in the venture capital world, which is venture capital is the financing of innovation. So what happens is uh, somebody in a garage invents an idea and they get a, some family members to put up a little money so they can do a little work on it. And then they end up getting a venture capital firm to give them 5 million bucks or 10 million bucks to kind of get it rolling. And then a private equity company will come in and give them a hundred million. And, you know, a lot of uh, manufacturers, uh, you know, are not paying attention to the venture capital ecosystem. And what happens is that uh, they'll, they get surprised by some incredible disruption in their industry, that where did this come from? Well, this didn't just happen 10 minutes ago. I mean, it's been happening over some years because there was a kid in a garage who got venture capital, who then got private equity, and then they roll it out and they kick your butt is kind of what happens because now they've got $100 million that they can, they can take over an industry. So I would, I would tell uh, manufacturers that they really need to be paying attention to uh, venture capital and the venture capital ecosystem. It's very frequent that I'll speak to an audience of uh, manufacturing executives, and some of those are engineers, and, oh, Joel, it's not possible. You don't understand physics. You don't understand manufacturing. You, know, you don't understand our world. Well, I'm from the money business. I may not exactly understand physics, and I may not exactly understand assembly lines, 
But what I do understand is that there's a kid in a garage right this minute working to solve whatever problem you think cannot be solved. That's my power strategy. That's one of my strategies is that you can never say it can't be done because there's some kid somewhere. How many things in our world from, from now or whenever couldn't be done 500 years ago or 50 years ago or 10 years ago that we're doing every day right now? I mean, almost everything. And so to say it can't be done is a really limiting belief that puts you in a place where you are ripe to be disrupted. And I would tell manufacturers that they need to pay attention to the venture ecosystem and they need to potentially invest in little companies so that they can control some of the inventions that come out of those little companies because they're, they're just unbelievable. I mean, every single thing that, uh, that you know, really is disruptive to us now got its start somewhere in the venture capital ecosystem. So I would just say uh, it's a different idea. It's something that most people don't understand. And if they want to kick it around, they can sure call. Awesome. Well, Joel, if people do want to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Probably go to joelblock.com and all my contact information is there. Wonderful. And I will also put that in the show notes. So Joel, it has been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you today. Well, Lisa, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, just keep being an advantage player. Thanks. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Hey, do me a favor. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Also, feel free to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow the network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either go to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow this network, the stronger and deeper community we will have. I appreciate you. Thank you.